everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode number 24, and as always, I am your host, Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at the seventh storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. I will also, later on in the episode, be shining the spotlight on Golden Age artist Fred Gardner. And speaking of Fred Gardner, I want to share something that I found out um, about Mr. Gardner in the last few weeks here. A few weeks ago, I was researching something for my other podcast, Legends of the Batman, and I came across something rather interesting. While he had been writing and illustrating stories for the company as far back as Action Comics number 1, Gardner's first cover for National was the cover to Action Comics number 8, which I covered back in episode 8. Now, this cover doesn't feature Superman, and in fact, as I mentioned in that episode, it's actually the last Action Comics cover, at least in this era of the books, to make no reference whatsoever to Superman. The cover shows a Native American and a colonial soldier locked in hand-to-hand combat. It's a decent cover, but what I discovered is that this cover is a swipe of a 1919 oil painting by N.C. Wyeth. That painting, titled The Battle of Glen Falls, was originally done as an illustration for an edition of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757, a historical novel by James Fenimore Cooper. And this isn't just an homage or a source of inspiration, it's an outright swipe, with nearly every detail being beat for beat the same. The only differences are that where in the original art there's a knife on the ground, and on Gardner's cover, it's a hatchet. And then the backgrounds are different as well. So finding this out was a little bit disappointing. And it makes me wonder if some of Gardner's other covers were based off illustrations from books or pulp magazines. N.C. Wyeth was an American artist and painter who may actually be familiar to some of you out there. He started out doing Western-themed paintings and eventually did posters and advertising items for Coca-Cola, Lucky Strike, and more, but his most well-known work are the more than 3,000 painted illustrations he did for then-contemporary editions of books including Treasure Island, Robinson Crusoe, the previously mentioned uh, Last of the Mohicans, and Rip Van Winkle. And it was these book illustrations that actually gave Wyeth another comic book connection, and perhaps a more important one at that, because it was Wyeth's illustrations for Robin Hood that ultimately inspired Jerry Robinson when he was designing the visual look of Robin, the Boy Wonder, in Detective Comics number 38. I highly doubt that I'm the first one to realize the connection between the two images, but it doesn't seem to be information that's you know widely known. And I'm going to put a link to the image of Wyeth's painting in the show notes at greatcrypton.com for this episode, so you can see it side by side with Gardner's cover, because it is rather surprising. cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, 
actors, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. The seventh story from the Superman Daily Newspaper strip ran from June 12, 1939 to July 22, 1939. That puts Action Comics number 15, which was the focus of last episode, coming out pretty much right smack in the middle of it, which is interesting given the premise of both stories. It was 36 strips long, which was the same as the last stories from the daily that we looked at, and those strips were numbered 127 through 162 of the series. The story has been called Superman and the Runaway, as well as The Orphanage Adventure. It was written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster, and a new face, Dennis Neville. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics credits Neville as doing all the art on the story, while the Grand Comics Database credits Neville with finishes over Schuster's layout. And I'd say the latter is more likely. And I also sense a little Paul Cassidy, especially at the end of the story, but no side I could find confirmed that. Our story opens at daybreak, and we see a young boy climbing out of the window of a state orphanage. Wishing so long to his former home, the boy heads off with a bindle in hand and an adorable little dog in tow. Not as adorable as my dog, mind you, but still very adorable. The boy follows the railroad tracks and heads south, but soon, overcome by hunger, fatigue, and the sweltering sun, the boy passes out on the tracks. Shortly, Clark Kent, who is walking to work, spots the boy on the tracks. And not only that, but a quickly approaching train. The puppy's fervent attempts to wake the boy are proving unsuccessful, so our hero quickly sheds the disguise of Clark Kent and leaps into action as Superman. He takes off on a run after the speeding train, faster and faster, finally passing the speeding locomotive. He grabs the boy and jumps to safety mere seconds before the child suffers a crushing death from the hurtling train. Passengers inside the train marvel at the amazing rescue, but are unable to follow Superman and the boy as they swiftly leap from sight. Shortly, when the boy revives, Clark asks what made him pass out. The boy explains that he hasn't eaten in two days, and so, to rectify that, Clark takes the boy to a nearby diner. After the boy gorges himself on a plate of food, he starts to leave, but Clark stops him for a few questions. We learn that the boy's name is Frankie Dennis. Clark offers to take the boy home, but Frankie throws a fit and says that a place where people are beaten, starved, and worked as slaves is no kind of home, and he's never going back to the state orphanage. Ever. Clark thinks that there just might be something to this story, so he asks exactly what is done to them at the state orphanage. Frankie replies that they're given bad food, beaten, sold out for hard labor, and made to work at the orphanage itself. All actions perpetrated by the man who runs the orphanage, a superintendent Lyman. After asking again to make sure that the boy isn't lying, Clark tells him that he might be able to help, but only with Frankie's assistance. Frankie isn't too keen on the idea of going back, and asks why in the world he would want to go back 
when it would only mean double punishment from Lyman. Clark asked him to think of all the other kids that he would be helping, and he even goes so far as to question Frankie's nerve, and goes on to explain that he wants Frankie to be a sort of undercover agent and report back to Clark on Lyman's misdeeds. Clark's proposal has left the young man with a big decision. Should he go back to his former prison and hopefully help the other kids? Or should he just take his freedom and run for the border? Tough decisions, and the boy goes back and forth, weighing his options. Which should he choose, freedom or responsibility? Finally, he chooses. And you can almost cut the tension with a knife, can't you? But much to Clark's delight, Frankie agrees to help. Clark takes Frankie back to the orphanage. While devoted to helping his friends, the boy's nerves still show a bit as Clark knocks. Lyman opens the door, sees Frankie, and angrily grabs him. He's about to swat Frankie for running away, but Clark grabs Lyman by the collar and demands, Take your hands off that boy! Lyman becomes indignant and demands to know who Clark is and what business it is of his what he does. Clark informs Lyman that he's a reporter and that he has persuaded Frankie to return. Hearing that Clark is a reporter causes his tune to do an about-face, and Lyman quickly starts kissing up to Clark, saying he merely lost his temper as he finds it quite bothersome when one of the mischievous little tykes under his charge runs away. Clark agrees that it could be quite a headache and takes his leave as Lyman invites him to return at any time and <clears throat> encourages Frankie to agree. As Clark leaves, he thinks to himself that Frankie might have been lying but that Lyman struck him as a slimy little weasel. Perceptive, isn't he? Apparently so, because, as expected, once Clark is out of sight, Lyman again grabs Frankie and begins to violently threaten him, demanding to know what he told Clark. But the boy cowers, terrified, and says, N -n Nothing. Honest. I, I didn't tell him nothing. Sometime later, Clark is back at the office of the Daily Star, and defying all logic, <laughs> approaches Lois for a date. I guess technically he hasn't done that in a bit, so maybe he thought his chances had improved? I, I don't know. I noticed, though, that most of the crazy Lois stuff has been happening in the newspapers. Aside from the World's Fair story, we haven't seen her too much in the comics recently, and I wonder if Siegel felt it easier to work in these scenes into the into the stories of the newspaper strips where he had more room. But Clark asks Lois if this she'll have lunch with him. Just a simple lunch, maybe even as colleagues. But Lois tersely replies that she's not interested. Clark, exasperated at this point at Lois's constant rejection, says, Aw, oh, come on, I'm not Poison Ivy. And Lois replies in typical Lois fashion by screaming, for once and all, will you please let it register in that thick dome of yours that I dislike you heartily. Understand? And that's pretty harsh. Typical Lois, though, and still rather funny. Thankfully for Clark, before he can be subjected to any more of Lois's verbal abuse, a guy comes out and tells Clark that Editor Taylor wants to see him. Taylor tells Clark that he wants him to look into the story of the amazing rescue of the runaway from earlier in the day. Clark says okay, but also that he has a hunch that the orphanage itself may not be on the up-and-up, and suggests that Lois help him cover that angle. A swell idea, Taylor exclaims, and Clark laughs to himself that Lois will have to put up with him whether she wants to or not. 
because one sure way to endear a woman to you is to force her to spend time with you, right? As you might expect, Lois is less than thrilled to be going with Clark, and she makes sure he knows it, too. But Clark and Lois's time alone doesn't last very long, because as they are heading out to cover the story, they are caught up by two reporters from another paper. Clark and Lois try to politely excuse themselves, but the rival reporters just keep dogging them about the scoop that they're after. Clark and Lois tell them they're simply on a luncheon date, no news, just, you know, two reporters who hate each other, hanging out, and then they get in a cab and drive off. They think they have dodged the bullet, but find that the other reporters are following them in another taxi. Clark tells the driver to step on it, and if he can lose the other car, there will be a fiver in it for him. Now, five dollars might not seem like much incentive, but remember, this is 1939. Five dollars then is like eighty dollars today, which is a bit more incentive. And again, no commentary on how Clark has so much money to throw around, but with his newfound wealth, the cab driver gets all too fast, too furious with it, and turns the corner. That's it. That's the sum total of his big evasive driving maneuvers to evade the trailing taxi. He turns the corner. It seems to work, though, and Clark and Lois continue to their destination unabated. Later at the orphanage, Clark tells Lois not to let on to Lyman that anything is up, and just as they're about to knock on the door, who should show up? The two reporters the cab driver so expertly ditched. Surprise! Clark gives them a stern finger-pointing for following them, but one of the reporters simply replies, All's fair in love, war, and gathering news! Clark would do well to learn that lesson now, because Lois takes that to heart very soon. The reporters pressure Clark and Lois again about the scoop that they're after, but the Daily Star's finest continue to insist it's just a run-of-the-mill story. Inside, Lyman hears the doorbell ringing and sees the gaggle of reporters on his stoop. Panicking, he runs down the hall and yells at the children, who are all busy sweeping, cleaning, and doing other chores, to put away their cleaning tools and start playing with their toys. He then threatens them. If the reporters ask any questions, he demands that they say they love the home and are very happy there, or else. Lyman then goes back to the door and lets Clark, Lois, and the other reporters in. Clark asks why it took so blasted long to answer the door, and Lyman feeds him a line that he was doing reports or some such and just didn't hear the door. And then he asks what he can do for them. Clark says that they want to look around because their editor thinks it would make for a good story. Lyman is more than willing to show them around, and with the other reporters in tow, that puts a bit of a damper on Clark and Lois's plan to investigate the conditions, but they opt to make the best of it. Lyman shows the kids gleefully playing in the backyard. He goes on to say that he loves them all just like they were his own children, all while snickering under his breath that he's pulled the wool over their eyes. Clark plays along, but is still a little skeptical. Meanwhile, Lois speaks with a girl at the home. The girl nervously tells her that she loves it there and that Lyman is treating them wonderfully. As the girl starts to leave, Lois notices a bruise on the girl's arm and inquires how she got it. The girl stutters, then nervously says that she fell, leaving Lois suspicious that there might be more to her story. Clark and Lois then visit a boy laid up in bed. The boy tells them that he's just so tired from having so much fun, but thinks to himself that the real story is that he's tired from all the work Lyman made him do. Just then, Frankie sticks his head in the door and whispers that he's got something to tell Clark. 
Pulling him aside, he starts to say something about Lyman warning the kids, but stops short when Lyman enters the room. Lyman tells Frankie to go ahead and say what he had to say, but Frankie denies it. Lyman then asks Clark and the other reporters if they were satisfied with their look around, and Clark acknowledges that they were, but wonders to himself what Frankie had to say. Back outside, the reporters give Clark guff about the lame story, and after a told-you-so from Clark, they part ways. As Clark and Lois ride in the taxi, Clark confides in Lois that he's still suspicious of Lyman. Meanwhile, back at the orphanage, Lyman grabs Frankie and locks him in the attic for trying to talk to Clark. Clark and Lois return to the Daily Star and tell editor Taylor that they didn't have any luck digging up a scoop at the orphanage, which causes Taylor to berate them and tell them that from now on they should keep their hunches to themselves. Because I guess you don't want your reporters out looking for stories? Anyway, back at the orphanage, Lyman forces the children to work, scrubbing floors and chopping firewood, while laughing to himself that he pulled a fast one on the reporters. That evening, at his apartment, Clark sheds his mild-mannered disguise to reveal once again the mighty form of Superman. He resolves to get to the bottom of the orphanage mystery and leaps out into the night. The strip then breaks for a double-panel scientific explanation of Superman's amazing strength which only mentions the difference in gravity between Krypton and Earth. No mention here of Kryptonians being a race of Superman. And I know it's only, well, the same as two panels, but it's interesting that there's no mention of that. It hasn't gone away entirely. It will get mentioned again, even if not in the comic books. But this is just another step in the evolution of the source of Superman's powers. So, coming back into the story with the next strip, Superman leaps through the night, finally alighting on a window edge outside the orphanage. Peeping inside, Superman sees Lyman working on the books. Lyman talks to himself, gleefully relishing in how he's stealing money from the orphanage by cooking the books. Meanwhile in the attic, Frankie begins to yell and scream for someone to let him out, finally opting to try and wreck the place in order to rouse someone. Lyman hears the commotion and leaves his office to shut him up. Superman takes advantage of Lyman's absence to sneak in and take a peek at the books for himself and notices some unusually high payments for groceries. He decides to look into it further, so seemingly ignoring Frankie's cries for help, Superman grabs the record books and leaps back into the night once more. Meanwhile, at her home, Lois tosses and turns, unable to sleep for worry about the orphanage. She decides that she may end up looking like a fool but wants to go check it out while Lyman isn't expecting her and heads to the orphanage. Back at the orphanage itself, Lyman is whipping Frankie. Literally. He's got a whip and he's giving Frankie a terrible lashing. While still elsewhere, Superman breaks into the headquarters of Star Groceries. Entering the office, he forces his way into the filing cabinet and actually expresses regret in having to wreck their property, then examines the records and sees a huge discrepancy in what Lyman is paying and what his books say he's paying. And with proof of Lyman's misdeeds, Superman leaps back out into the night to dole out some Superman-style justice, and probably do something that would be considered a felony in 16 states. Lyman is still whipping poor Frankie back at the orphanage, while the other children cower in their beds. Lois breaks into the orphanage herself and hears Frankie's cries. Following the noise to the attic, she sees Lyman beating Frankie. Lyman slaps Lois out of the way and locks both of them in the attic, 
as he tells Lois that she'll die before she ever gets a chance to print the story. Lyman runs down the hall and grabs a fistful of loose cash from the office so that he can make a quick getaway. But before running for the border, he grabs a conveniently nearby can of gasoline and pours it through the hallway of the orphanage before gleefully tossing a match, setting the entire building on fire. Ho ho, I'll burn it down to the ground. They'll never catch me. I'll skip the country. No subtlety here, folks. Flames and smoke quickly fill the orphanage as the children rush out of the building. Frankie and Lois bang on the attic door as they are slowly choked by the burning smoke. Outside, Lyman runs towards his car with the destination of a life of luxury in South America on his mind. Just then, Superman makes the scene. He spots Lyman running from the burning building and says, The superintendent rushing from the burning orphanage. The coward's gone insane! And I don't know about you, but... Running away from a burning building sounds like a rather sane thing to me. But thankfully, Lyman is a coward, and yeah, okay, a little bit insane. So Superman drops down to the ground just as Lyman's car starts moving. Superman grabs the car, hoisting it one-handed above his head, and using his free hand to rip off the rear wheels. Dropping the car back down to the ground, Superman jerks Lyman from the car. He uses a Vulcan nerve pinch to render Lyman unconscious so he can tend to the fire. Meanwhile, in the attic, Lois has succumbed to the smoke. Frankie grabs a chair and smashes the glass from a window, and yells out the window for help. Superman hears Frankie's cries and leaps up to the window. Bending the bars away, Superman grabs both Lois and Frankie and leaps to safety just as the building collapses to the ground. Later, Lois revives, and Frankie tells her that they were rescued by Superman, who quickly disappeared afterward. Just then, Clark and the police show up. Clark, despite having no proof whatsoever, tells the police to arrest Lyman for the orphanage arson. Later, an article in the Daily Star, written by Clark Kent, headlined, Grafton Cruelty Reign in the State Orphanage, tells of Lyman's nefarious misdeeds and of Frankie's heroism. Months later, Clark pays a visit to Frankie at the newly rebuilt orphanage and is pleased to hear Frankie and the other children are happy with the new orphanage and the newer, kinder superintendent. The end. And I loved this story. It's just another strong effort from the newspaper strips. And it was another Clark-heavy story, with Superman really only appearing briefly at the beginning and then more significantly at the end. I don't have a problem with that per se. Superman himself wasn't needed more in this story. But like before, I can't imagine McClure Syndicate being too happy with stories containing you know, long absences from the costume Superman. But they keep coming, so maybe I'm wrong on that. It's interesting that this story was published when Action Comics number 15, which featured the Kid Town story that we looked at last episode, was published. And I can't help but wonder if these kid-centric stories with Superman, you know, helping kids or saving kids, has anything to do with the Superman of America Club that just launched. Because that was targeted right at children. I mean, comic books in this era were targeted at kids and only kids, but there was likely at least a few adults reading them too. But the Superman of America Club was very much focused on the kids and getting them more involved. But <laughs> speaking of getting children involved, I kind of raised an eyebrow over Clark sending Frankie back to the orphanage uh, as his quote-unquote spy. I mean, the conditions Frankie described were pretty horrid, and it's rather 
unsuperman-like to put a child in that situation. However, it did provide for a nice little moment where Clark encourages him to go back. And then we have Frankie thinking it over and Clark reminding him that his friends need him and then Frankie ultimately deciding to do the right thing and go. That was a really nice moment that I liked. And it would have been great had it been Superman rather than Clark encouraging him to go back to the orphanage, but still a very nice scene. Lois, too, I was pleased to see her concern over the children's welfare, especially after that wife-beater story that we covered back in episode 16. Um, two quibbles with the story, one minor and the other, the other I'm having a harder time getting around. Uh, the minor one is that there were a few things that just kind of felt a bit like padding. Siegel spent almost two full strips having Superman chase down the train to save Frankie. And I really think that could have been cut down to just one strip and done just as well. And the stuff with the rival reporters seemed like filler too. Although it did kind of add more to the story of Clark Kent as a reporter, so I kind of liked that. The bigger issue, and what is really probably the only glaring plot hole of the story, happens when Frankie is tearing it up in the attic. Lyman hears him, but Superman doesn't, even though he entered Lyman's office right after Lyman left. Even discounting his superhearing, it seems that Superman should have heard Frankie just as well as Lyman did. But yeah, that's uh, that's all really I had to say about the story. I liked it a lot. There's just not too much to say about it. There was a lot of stuff going on there at once in the middle as it kept skipping back and forth from Superman to Lion to Lois. Uh, there was a lot of dynamic action, especially at the end. So just uh, just good stuff all around. For the art, I really liked uh, Neville's art here. And either I'm getting better at picking up on the characteristics of the various artists by going through all these stories, or Siegel and Cassidy and Neville are just different enough that it's noticeable. Either way, Neville has some good stuff here. Uh, his Clark looks similar to Cassidy's, but the hair is somewhat different. It's fuller and it looks a little curlier. His Lois looks considerably different, especially early in the story. And see, that's why I say I sensed some Cassidy at the end of the story, because the Lois at the end looks more like the Lois that we've seen before. But Neville's Superman is just simply awesome. He looks a lot more buff than we've seen with any of the artists until now. Not uh, not cartoonishly so, he still looks feasibly athletic, but there's a noticeable increase in his muscles. He just looks really great. Uh, the panel where Clark goes home and changes to Superman is fantastic, and I will be sure to include that one in the show notes at greatcrypton.com. Look at that and compare it to the images in the notes for earlier episodes and I think you'll see exactly what I mean. Neville doesn't seem to have quite the handle on the cape that Cassidy does. With Neville it's thin and kinda of flat where Cassidy's and even Schuster's to a point was more fluid. For those keeping track of such things though there's no S on the cape in this story which is another indication that there's a different artist at the drawing table. But there is a great panel. After Clark sees Frankie unconscious on the tracks we get a dynamic panel of him leaping into action, casting his jacket to the side and pulling his shirt off to reveal Superman's costume underneath. It's one of the closest things we've gotten to the iconic shirt rip so far, 
and it's really quite awesome. This story was mostly reprinted in the first volume of dailies from Kitchen Sink Press, and like the previous ones, it is mostly available online at dccomics.com, which I will link to in the show notes. And I say mostly because, for some reason, both sources are missing strip 149. Strangely, skipping that strip doesn't negatively affect the story, but it's strange that they would leave that out of the reprints. But if you're interested in the complete story, like many of the newspaper stories so far, it was colored and reprinted in the comic books, this time in Superman number 3, and even served as the inspiration for the cover of that book. That colorized version was also later reprinted in Superman Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 2. This is, however, the last storyline from the dailies that was colored and reprinted in the comic books. So from now on, we'll have to rely on the kitchen sink volumes or the digital versions at dccomics.com. So hopefully future stories won't be missing any strips. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Superman, a name known throughout the world, to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? The men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. 
One complete cover and a possible headshot on another is all that Fred Garnier is known to have contributed to Superman himself, but I do want to try and spotlight everyone that has contributed to Superman over the years. Plus, despite being a pioneer in the industry, Gardner's contributions are often very overlooked. Frederick B. Gardner, a comic book artist, letterer, and writer, was born in Albany, New York on October 3, 1913. Gardner's love for drawing began at a very young age. As a child, he would lay on the floor drawing on paper bags or whatever else he could get his hands on. In 1935, Gardner became something that was a rarity in the day, a college-educated comic artist, when he graduated from Syracuse University with a bachelor's degree in fine arts. It was during his time in college that Gardner taught himself how to letter. It seems his dorm mate was an engineering student, and Gardner used his printing textbooks and practiced each exercise over and over until he had mastered the form and technique that he needed. Following the earning of his degree, Gardner moved to New York City and drew for a variety of pulp magazines. In 1936, he joined the Harry Chesler shop, negotiating a pay rate of $15 to $20 per week. Here, Gardner earned experience and developed his style and also the ability to create a comic strip from start to finish, penciling, lettering, and inking, which is a method that he would use for most of the rest of his career. While with Chesler, Gardner drew a variety of western and adventure features published by Centaur, and both the daily and Sunday strips on the Flash Gordon-inspired Dan Hastings strip from 1937 to 1938. In 1938, Gardner married Ruth Ball and shortly after purchased a home in Long Island where they settled down in 1939. But 1938 was also a year of big changes in Gardner's professional life as he began his freelance career, including work for national periodicals. While working for Chesler, Gardner had worked to develop features of his own, and with National set to launch a new book, Action Comics, one of Gardner's pitches was accepted. In the debut issue of Action Comics, Gardner wrote and drew the first 12-page story featuring Zaytara, the Master Magician. Similar to Lee Falk's Mandrake the Magician, Zaytara was a tuxedoed magician, perhaps best known for his ability to render magic by speaking commands backwards. Along with his friend and bodyguard Tong, Zaytara used his magical and detective skills to fight crime. Zaytara quickly became one of the most popular features in Action Comics, second only to Superman and in fact became the only feature other than Superman to be given a dominant cover appearance during the Golden Age. Zaytara continued to run in the pages of Action Comics as well as the soon-to-launch World's Finest Comics until the 1950s. In the historical first issue of Action Comics, Gardner also took over art and writing duties on Pep Morgan, which had previously run in more fun comics. The next month saw more added to Gardner's roster as he took over art and writing on Speed Saunders and Detective Comics and launched a new feature, Anchors Away, in New Adventure Comics. Gardner developed a sometimes stiff but clean style that fit well in National's books. His solid line, exacting and precise illustrations, and uncluttered pages gave him an easily recognized style. The speed at which Gardner was able to complete pages was also a huge benefit in a day when books contained multiple features. Though he most often worked under his own name, Gardner did occasionally use pen names, including Gene Baxter, Lance Blackwood, and F.G.B. While Gardner's strips at National would all be handed off to other writers by mid-1939, 
He remained the sole artist on Pep Morgan, Speed Saunders, and most importantly Zaytara for the remainder of his tenure with the company. Gardner also did a number of covers in 1939 for National's four books, illustrating a majority of the Action Comics and Detective Comics covers during that year, including Action Comics number 15, which featured Superman. Gardner did his last work for National in the fall of 1940, before serving a stint in the Army in World War II. During his service and after being discharged in 1944, Gardner spent the next decade continuing to freelance for a large number of publishers, including Marvel Comics, Hillman Periodicals, Eastern Color, and more. In the early 40s, he freelanced for quality comics, working on such strips as The Marksman, Quicksilver, and created still more characters such as the Blue Tracer and the Zaytara clone Tor the Magic Master. From the mid-40s through the early 50s, Gardner also freelanced for Lev Gleason Publications, primarily illustrating crime stories, but also romance and western genre stories. Gardner also worked for Vin Sullivan at Columbia Comics, and in 1952 rejoined his former editor and friend once more at Magazine Enterprises. And it was there that Gardner felt that he did his best work, or at least the work that was most satisfying to him personally. In addition to a number of covers and work on such strips like Trail Colt and Space Ace, Gardner did a three-year stint penciling, inking, lettering, and doing covers for Western gunfighter The Durango Kid, with stories written mostly by Gardner Fox. Gardner stayed on the Durango Kid for 23 issues until the book's cancellation with issue number 41 in 1955. In the last years of the series, Gardner also freelanced a number of wildlife illustrations for various outdoor publications, many of which made their way into M.E. books as filler. With the comics market shrinking due to dwindling sales thanks to the U.S. Senate hearings of the 50s and the onset of new mediums such as television, Gardner opted to retire from comics in 1955. Following this, Gardner became an employee of the U.S. government, securing a job with the post office where he would work for 20 years. During this time, he continued drawing, freelancing fishing and wildlife illustrations for various publications, including his local newspaper and The Long Island Fisherman. This work led him to be featured in the April 1987 edition of Outdoors Unlimited, and in the early aughts, he was honored with membership in the Outdoor Writers Association of America. Though he remained mostly out of the comics industry following the closure of magazine enterprises, Gardner spent much time during the following years recreating some of his old comic covers for interested fans. In 1998, he was guest and panelist at Comic-Con International in San Diego, where he was presented with the Inkpot Award, an award given for lifetime achievement in comics and related areas. The following year, he was a guest at WonderCon in Oakland, California, where he was once more able to reunite with many former colleagues and fans. Fred Gardner died September 13, 2002, in San Ramon, California, less than three weeks shy of what would have been his 89th birthday. Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. 
a strange visitor from another planet, Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. On Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month by month, issue by issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a mini-cast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time. library, but she told me to keep an eye on the girl behind the counter. You mean the one talking to her hot dog? What's up, everybody? My name is Steve. And I'm Andy. And we host a podcast from West Lafayette, Indiana and Columbus, Ohio called Steve and Andy Meet Batman. And on that show, Steve and myself, Andy, we watch classic episodes of the 60s Batman, preferably season three, and then we discuss them. You can check us out at steveandandy.blogspot.com Or subscribe to us on iTunes. Let us know what you think. Send us emails at steveandandy at gmail.com Hope you enjoy the show and hope to hear from you soon. See ya! I want to thank you all for joining me this episode. Next time, if everything goes according to plan... We will be heading back to the spinner rack for a look at Action Comics number 16, Superman number 2, and Action Comics number 17, wherein Superman faces a familiar menace, and I will be joined by another guest co-host. And I hope you'll all come back for that, because I know that I'm really excited about it. In the meantime, please stop by the website at greatcrypton.com. There you will find show notes for this and all episodes. And seriously, even if you don't normally... Head over this time and check out the images that I talked about, both Wyeth's original painting and Neville's take on Superman from these strips, because I think you'll really enjoy it. At the site, you will also find the email link, thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com, as well as the links to the RSS feed, the show's Facebook page, and the link to the iTunes store. If you use iTunes, you are encouraged to leave a review, and I would be very thankful to anyone who does. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, home to many awesome Superman-related podcasts. It also now has its very own promo, thanks to Charlie Niemeyer of Superman in the Bronze Age. If you have a podcast and want to plug the network as a whole, be sure to search that out. And thank you once again, Charlie, for putting that together. I also invite you to check out my other podcast that I do with my friend Michael Kaiser, Legends of the Batman, where we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. We are well into Batman's second year at this point. Robin has finally made the scene, as have several of Batman's rogues gallery, the least of which not being the Joker and Catwoman. So we have some fun times ahead. 
and if you're not listening to that, you definitely should be. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you next time. Goodbye. Here's a surprise. Change your mind about coming back home? No, I haven't, Dad. I want to know what you intend to do about Bill Trotter. Let's move on a little bit. Bill Trotter comes to trial in a week. If the jury finds him innocent, I'll acquit him. If they find him guilty... You'll sentence him to hang. You'll be murdering an innocent man, and I think you know it. Oh, I don't expect you to understand the reasons behind everything I have to do. But try. And show a little tolerance, son. Everybody knows you've sold out to the crooked boss rule in this town. Am I supposed to be tolerant of that? I don't understand why. Craig Boseman's a second-rate tinhorn gambler. I can't believe you're afraid of him, but yet you take orders from him like a slave. Why, Dad? Why? All right. You don't want to talk about it, but I'm doing something about it. I've sent for the Durango kid. You've sent for Durango? To head the vigilantes. With his help, we'll rid this town of Boss Craig and his gunmen or know the reason why.